3, 3.30 by Free Speech Radio News, 4 o'clock Hard Knock Radio, Flashpoints at 5, you know this, the news at 6, and La, Cro- La Rosa Chronicles at 7. Stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. The shadows of this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is the 27th of October, 2009. <laughs> Hell's bells. I was listening to this show before this about the fate of the earth. Yes. I think the human race is doing the best it can, but no, no, actually, uh, let's see, we're asleep at the wheel. Those guys that, you know, overshot the airplane, I just love that. You know what they were doing? Well, never mind. I I won't say another word, but uh, the story this week, of course, was the boy in the balloon, and I managed to miss it. I'm getting smarter. I, I didn't even, I didn't even hear a thing about it till it was all over. I picked up um, my old children's book, the one about the red balloon, and I listened to a couple of people commenting, saying that it was child abuse, uh, this this current situation in which uh, uh, some parents decided to, <laughs> to set, set up a little fraud. You know, they were uh, publicity hounds. Anyway, uh, they uh, traumatized their six-year-old by... Um, well, lies are a curious thing. Maybe it didn't hurt the children, but <clears throat> all I could think of was that beautiful book, The Red Balloon, that I used to read to my little children, my little boys when they were that age. Uh, in that story, I had trouble because at the end, in the ending, it wasn't... Nobody went home again like they do in The Wild Things, you know, the story where the wild things are in The Red Balloon. The little boy, he's very lonely, and everyone casts out his balloon, the red balloon, throws it away. His grandmother uh, chucks it out the window. Anyway, all the balloons come from all over Paris, and he takes hold of them all, and uh, he disappears into the infinite. When I saw the movie, I thought, is this... Is this uh, a safe movie for little children? Uh, then I decided that maybe uh, maybe it was a good idea to let children see a movie about, I guess it's about death. I don't know. Uh, check out the red balloon. Uh, this week, I wanted to talk about uh, an article in Harper's 
uh, it's an essay by Richard Rodriguez, but a friend of mine was driving me down to the station today. She said, oh, no, Richard Rodriguez is a rat, you know, or a Republican anyway, and that he's grandiose and all that. Uh, actually, uh, Richard Rodriguez is an editor at uh, New American Media in San Francisco. And this essay is all about the twilight of the American newspaper. And I find this fascinating. Uh, nostalgia ain't what it used to be, folks. I'm not sure we should mourn the demise of our newspapers. Uh, the article basically says that we've lost our sense of place. I think we found a new place out in the stratosphere, right? <laughs> there with the balloons. We're, we're all in, a, what is it, a mental space, a virtual space. Our city is in the mind. Anyway, uh, this article is called Final Edition. And it's in Harper's November 2009. I think you'll find it fascinating. School teachers might want to use it um, because, you know, it's the custom to moan and groan about uh, our lack of literate, uh, what is it, students. Uh, I'm not so sure. I'm amazed. I think that the fact that we have all these little uh, texting goodies, I think it's amazing how much children enjoy writing now even if even if they they just even if they write in gibberish but uh i think uh rodriguez has tried to synthesize some of the thoughts many of us have had about the uh what is it the demise of community uh he's basically talking about um the ways in which what is that? Um, in which things transmute. I find him a respite from the WASP journalists that I grew up with, the Eurocentric guys, the heterosexual, omnipotent types. Um, those are the know-it-alls. I, I was taught that, you see, you were not supposed to know who was doing the writing. Uh, you weren't supposed to give yourself away. That's so feminine, you know. <laughs> In print, the omnipotent objective voice was the thing. Uh, Richard Rodriguez always gives himself away. He's very personal. He talks about being gay and, uh, Yes, he wants to be Gore Vidal, I think. Uh, check out his book, Brown. That's the one that caught me first. Uh, it is about the, uh, oh, the color line, that damn color line. It's so confusing. Everyone has a different spin on it these days. Toni Morrison says that race has become uh, a metaphor for just about everything from class to... Uh, Oh, to what? Who knows? Um, we need to, we need to sit down and define our terms, folks. Let's redefine everything. Anyway, Richard Rodriguez writes about the Hispanic or Latin or, uh, the South. Let's say the South. Whatever we're calling it this week, I find him to be very lyric. He trips out. Uh, I think that he avoids most of the cant and BS of the politically correct types, you know, the hype types, uh, the, what is that, knee-jerk progressives, uh, I find him to be 
very warm and uh, his humor, humanity. Uh, I, I, I kind of, I know it's a failing, but I kind of like his grandiose attitude. Uh, when I think of all the Anglophiles I used to know, I think it's nice to have, uh, <laughs> to have, have his Aristo affect. Uh, now, the essay, let's see, is called Final Edition, Twilight of the American Newspaper, once again, November issue of Harper's. And it's funny, he he skips all over the place. That's another thing I like about Richard Rodriguez. He does not write the proper kind of essay. For example, um, he uh, he ends the essay. Listen to this. It's so, so sweet. It, he goes out to get his newspaper, The Chronicle, uh, and he writes, In the growling gray light, San Francisco still has foghorns. I collect the San Francisco Chronicle from the wet steps. I am so lonely, I must subscribe to three papers, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The San Francisco Chronicle. I remark their thinness as I climb the stairs. The three together equal what I remember. <laughs> I do remember, right? I remember the Chronicle. There was a dude, uh, my first review, newspaper review in San Francisco. I'm trying to remember. I've forgotten the guy's name, golly. He said that I did a... Um, he said, I was a natural actress, touching cameo. What was that? Anyway, I was in, um, I was in a Moliere play, yes, uh, uh, Tartuffe, over at the San Francisco Interplayers, 1953. Yes, I remember that. Uh, <laughs> actually, Rodriguez talks about Herb Kane. He doesn't mention Charles McCabe. Uh, let's see, I want to read you. One paragraph here when he talks about uh, uh, the failure of a sense of place. He says, when a newspaper dies in America, it's not simply that a commercial enterprise has failed. It's that a sense of place has failed. If the San Francisco Chronicle is near death, and why else would the editor celebrate its 144th anniversary? And why else would the editors devote a week to feature articles on fog? It is because San Francisco's sense of itself as a city is perishing. Oh, yes. Um, he says, most newspapers that are dying today were born in the 19th century. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer died in 2009. Born 1863. Rocky Mountain News died 2009, born 1859. The Ann Arbor News died 2009, born 1835. It was the pride and the function of the American newspaper in the 19th century to declare the forming congregation of buildings and services a city, a place busy enough or populated enough to have news. Frontier American journalism 
preserved a vestige of the low church impulse toward universal literacy whereby the new country imagined it could read and write itself into existence. We were the Gutenberg nation. <laughs> anyway, he talks about being a um, paper boy. I read the San Francisco Chronicle in high school, living in Sacramento. Uh, he says, 25 cents bought me a connection with the city. Uh, then he goes on to talk about Herb Cain. Mm-hmm. Oh, Herb Cain. He quoted me twice. What a thrill that was. Um, he says... I think this is wonderful. He says that a woman he knows who was 96 grew up out on the American prairie and that she learned to read and her students uh, learned to read from the Chicago Tribune. That's amazing. Um, she told her class... She did not expect to see even a fraction of what the world had to offer out there. But she hoped that they might write, that her students might. Isn't that amazing? I think, what is that? I think it's strange to, to, um, to look at the synthesis. Um, I think maybe we are like the, uh, period in the early 19th century, uh, we're beginning to see the synthesis. Maybe this global consciousness is real. Uh, he writes that the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, was founded in 1865. It was called the Daily Dramatic Chronicle, first of all. It was two teenage brothers borrowed a $20 gold piece. They were Charles and Michael DeYoung. Uh, they came west with their widowed mother from St. Louis in California. These brothers invented themselves as descendants of French aristocracy. They were adolescents of extraordinary gumption at a time when San Francisco was a city of gumption and of stranded young men. Karl Marx wrote that Gold Rush California was thickly populated by men of all races, from the Yankee to the Chinese, from the Negro to the Indian and Malay, from the Creole and Mestizo to the European. <laughs> Oscar Wilde seconded Karl Marx. Oscar Wilde wrote, It is an odd thing, but everyone who disappears is said to be in San Francisco. <laughs> he goes on. Richard Rodriguez goes on to write, What must Gold Rush San Francisco have been like? Melville's Nantucket? Burning Man? An arms bazaar in Yemen? There were Russians, Chileans, Frenchmen, Welshmen, Mexicans. There were Australian toughs. The worst of the lot by most accounts. Uh, Sydney ducks, they were called. They prowled the waterfront. There were Chinese opium dens beneath the streets and Chinese opera houses above them. Historians relish the old young city's foggy wharfs and alleyways. 
its frigates, fleas, mud, and hazard. Two words attached to the lawless city. One was vigilante, from the Spanish. The other was hoodlum, a word coined in San Francisco to name the young men loitering about corners, threatening especially to the Chinese. <laughs> the de Young brothers named their newspaper the Daily Dramatic Chronicle because stranded young men seek entertainment. The city very early developed a taste for the limelight that was as urgent as its taste for red light. In 1865, there were competing opera houses in the city. Six or seven, twelve theaters. The Daily Dramatic Chronicle was a theatrical sheet delivered free of charge to the city's saloons and cafes and reading rooms. <laughs> I remember 1953 being in a play right at uh, the Bella Union Theater, uh, Moliere's Tartuffe. They told us it was the oldest theater in San Francisco. I'm not sure that's the case, but it was down there across the street from the um, Hungry Eye where Mort Saul held forth, around um, the corner from the Purple Onion, wonderful place Phyllis Diller used to uh, hit the stage at the Purple Onion. Um, Charles McCabe, the writer then uh, that I found so interesting in the uh, uh, in the Chronicle in my day, I remember um, I remember talking. Well, I wrote him a letter once, and I suggested to him he had been uh, he had been writing misogynist columns. Um, he had suggested that uh, he preferred virgins. He preferred that. Uh, well, he wanted to go out with women who had not slept with a great many men, that sort of thing. Anyway, I wrote this nice feminist letter telling him that the future held out a possibility that men and women might become friends, that is, you know, comrades, that sort of thing. And he wrote this terrific column called Take a Dame to Lunch. I must find that. I know KPFA listeners would like it. Take a Dame to Lunch, right in which he opined that if if um, uh, a guy were smart enough to uh, make friends with a woman, she was sure uh, to make a man of him. Aha, uh -huh. oh, Charles McCabe, poor fellow. The booze got him, I think. Anyway, um, mm -hmm. take a dame to lunch, unforgivable. Anyway... <laughs> Things were different in the 70s, folks. Uh, the, um, the Chronicle, yes, started out as this, let's call it, uh, theater sheet. Uh, San Francisco appreciated the minstrel shows and the circuses and the melodians, and they especially loved Shakespeare. They wanted to know all about the plays. Stages were set up in gambling halls and saloons. Shakespearean actors with... Uh, Costumes, velvets, much the worse for wear, pointed to a ghost rising at the back of the house. Peace, break thee off, look where it comes again. Rodriguez goes on to tell a story about a ghost. 
An Italian came to San Francisco. He swears he saw the ghost of a 49er in the early light. He woke in an old house out by the ocean. This 49er was very young, my friend said, with a power of sadness about him. Yes, uh, the ghost of a 49er. <laughs> he had red hair and wore a dark shirt. Anyway, there are lots of ghosts in San Francisco. I've seen a few myself. Uh, <laughs> Rodriguez writes, in 1860, San Francisco had a population of 57,000. By 1870, the population had almost tripled to 149,000. Within three years of its founding, by 1868, the Daily Dramatic Chronicle would evolve to become the Daily Morning Chronicle. The de Young brothers were in their early 20s. Uh, along with the operas and theaters, they published news of ships sailing in and out of the bay. And news of bank robberies and saloon shootings and gold strikes and drownings and an extraordinary number of suicides. Likewise, fires for San Francisco was a wooden city, as it still is in many of its districts. Uh, it is still possible very occasionally to visit the gold rush city when one attends a crowded theater. Audiences here, more than in any city I know, possess a wit in common. They can react as one in pleasure, but also in derision. I often think our impulse toward hoot and holler might be related to our founding sense of isolation, to our being an oasis of civilization in the California desert. To quote Addison DeWitt from All About Eve, you remember that movie? Yet? <laughs> Later in this article, he spends a lot of time quoting Joan Didion. Anyway, uh, uh, he says that's about as good a rendition as he can summon of the sensibility that we have courted here for 150 years. Uh, it's also a sensibility we have deplored. Uh, <laughs> It's it's funny about um, the Chronicle. I haven't actually been reading it in recent years. I don't know why that is, because I was addicted to it in the 50s, in the 60s. Uh, he goes on to talk about the scandals, the fascinating scandals um, that the Chronicle made use of. He says... The San Francisco gentility has roots as shallow and as belligerent as those of the Australian blue gum trees that were planted heedlessly throughout the city. Sent our Sunday walks, right. Um, Michael de Young died in 1925, bequeathing the ownership of the Chronicle to his four daughters with a stipulation that it could not be sold out of the family until the death of the last surviving daughter. Uh, uh, let's see. Men, and they were usually men, who assumed the sole proprietorships of newspapers in the 19th century were the sort of men to be attracted by the way a newspaper could magnify an already 
fatted ego. Newspaper publishers were accustomed to lord over cities. Naturally, we're getting here to Citizen Kane. Rodriguez goes on to say, William Randolph Hearst was given the San Francisco Examiner by his father, a mining millionaire and U.S. senator, who may or may not have won it in a poker game in 1880. As it happened, the young Hearst was born to run a newspaper. He turned the examiner into the largest circulation paper in San Francisco before he moved on to New York, where in 1895 he acquired the New York Journal. Hearst quickly engaged in a yellow journalism rivalry with Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. Both Hearst and Pulitzer assumed political careers. Hearst served in Congress, uh, well, served is not quite the word. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about the careers of these renegades. Um, yes, nostalgia ain't what it used to be, and uh, renegades aren't what they used to be either. Um, Temples to Grandiosity. Uh, he says, of course, we remember Hearst as the original for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Welles portrayed Charles Foster Kane with a mix of populism and egomania that audiences of the time easily recognized as Hearst. Kane, the champion of the common man, becomes Kane, the autocrat. Kane builds an opera house for his paramour. Kane invents a war. <laughs> Citizen Kane tells the story of a newspaper publisher's rise and fall in one generation. A more accurate rendition would require an account of the long dissolution of that 19th century enterprise. <laughs> I have a footnote here. I once reviewed a terrific, terrific biography of uh, Orson Welles and talked about the the Citizen Kane story, uh, you remember, he was supposed to be longing for his childhood when he died, Citizen Kane, that is. And uh, he mentions the name of a, a little sleigh, a Rosebud, you remember, it burns in the fire and they, uh, they wonder why his dying words were Rosebud. It was um, this childhood uh, toy or this sled that he... He left behind when he was taken away from his home and adopted. And uh, I suppose it represents a tremendous sense of loss. In actual fact, Rosebud was um, uh, William Randolph Hearst's term for uh, his uh, paramour's clitoris. <laughs> it was known in Hollywood uh, as a famous... Uh, we can, let's see... We can only imagine what Orson Welles thought he was up to. Anyway, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner were both losing money in 1965 uh, when uh, William Randolph Hearst decided to collaborate on what they called uh, the San Francisco Newspaper Agency. Uh, I wish I had time. Shoot, I'm running out of time. There's a long, long description of the troubles and problems at the Chronicle. I don't know how many of us uh, 
how many of us follow this. Um, he talks about, uh, Richard Rodriguez talks about uh, his associations with the paper throughout his life. And uh, yes, especially about Herb Cain. Uh, Herb Cain came along during the Second World War. And I think probably he's the the columnist. Oh, let's he does he does too talk about Charles McCabe, Esquire, yes. He says Charles McCabe is an erudite connoisseur of books, spirits, and failed marriages. That was it. Failed marriages. <laughs> he says he he went off the deep end a lot, yes, and he talks about art hoppy and political satire. Anyway, once again, I recommend to you this delightful article by Richard Rodriguez in Harper's Magazine for November 2009. Whatever your opinion about Richard Rodriguez's um, politics, he does an interesting job of telling us about uh, this newspaper that has reflected our community for 150 years, how it set the conversation for our chattering classes uh, in the heyday of Herb Kane. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'm back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Amnesty International's work lets many of us sleep at night. Leading Amnesty International is Irene Khan, the first woman, first Asian, and first Muslim to guide the world's largest human rights organization. She's brought a special fierce focus to exposing violations against women around the world and to insisting poverty is a human rights violation. She'll be here to discuss this. Welcome by Mitch Jezerich on Thursday evening, October 29 at 7.30 at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way at Dana in Berkeley.